Boy, was that loud enough for you? <laughs> Sorry about that. I think I had that one turned up a little bit high. I hope that uh, you didn't have your your phone volume or whatever you're listening to. I hope you didn't have it up too high because maybe now you have some hearing damage. Don't hold me liable. Don't hold me liable. Welcome again to another episode of Twice the Lutheran. I'm Pastor Wells. That's Wells with two L's because I'm twice the Lutheran, and you can be too. If you're wondering, by the way, where that name comes from, perhaps you're not familiar with synodical acronyms. If that's the case, I somewhat envy you. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm a pastor in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod, W-E-L-S. And it just so happens that I was born with the fantastic last name of Wells, but Wells with two L's, W-E-L-L-S. Hence the name of the podcast. It's a play on words. You're welcome. I'm clever like that when I want to be. Welcome back. Happy to have you back. Also happy to hear from you. If you have the ability or the desire or the inclination, please reach out to me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. We're continuing our journey now into Luther's small catechism as we study the truths of God's Word more or less topically through Luther's small catechism. We're about ready to jump into the meaty part, the meaty first part of the small catechism. We're about ready to jump into the Ten Commandments. But before we get into the Ten Commandments proper, we need just a little final couple words of introduction to the Ten Commandments. No doubt you're at least familiar with the Ten Commandments if you don't know them by heart. I hope to change that, by the way. I hope you'll memorize the Ten Commandments along with me. But before we jump into the Ten Commandments, maybe maybe you remember this about the Ten Commandments. If you've poked around from church to church or place to place, you may have noticed that there are different numbering systems for the Ten Commandments. Here's why there's different numbering systems. Because God didn't put numbers on the individual commandments. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. Well, now you know that. You're welcome. Yeah, God didn't put actual numbers on the, on the commandments. We know that they're supposed to be ten because it says in the Hebrew, here are the ten sayings. So because there's not individual numbers on them, some church bodies have put different numbers on different commandments. The biggest differences you'll notice are between the Lutheran and Reformed traditions. I guess we use the word traditions to describe that. The Lutherans and the Catholics more or less are the same numbering system. The Reformed have a little bit different. Don't get too, uh, let's say, put off by that. That's okay. The content is really what's important, and the content of the Ten Commandments are there. So, why do we need the Ten Commandments? So numbered. What are the Ten Commandments? Well, simply put, the Ten Commandments really are a summary of God's will for us in our lives. If you're following along in the Catechism, 
You can see those words printed on page 40. And we're going to look at, if you're following along in your catechism, and I hope you are sometimes, we're looking at pages 40 through 45. Again, we're in the newest catechism printed by Northwestern Publishing House. You can get those catechisms at nph.net. Go ahead and order the Evangelical Heritage Version or the English Standard Version. That's the one I'm reading at some point, I'll switch over. I'm just, I haven't done that yet. So if you're noticing differences in the verses between what I'm reading and what you're reading, that's why the content, again, the same, wording a little bit different. So what about the Ten Commandments? Why do we need them? They are a summary of God's will for us in our lives. And some people are convinced that the Ten Commandments are freedom killers. That the Ten Commandments are God's way of getting back at you. It's God's way of taking all the fun out of life. Well, is that what they are? Indeed not. Here's one thing that needs to change in our thinking from our natural thinking to our sanctified thinking. We learn through the Bible that every act of sinning is an act of slavery. Every act of sinning is an act of slavery because by nature we are slaves to sin. And so when we go back to sin, we are going back again to slavery. So if sin is slavery and the Ten Commandments are pointing us in the opposite direction, that must mean the Ten Commandments are the way to true freedom. And that is true because of what they do. Again, if you haven't listened to the last episode of the podcast, go back and listen to it when we talked about the role of the law. What does the law do? Points us to Christ, drives us to Christ. That's how we are driven by the Ten Commandments toward freedom. True freedom in Christ. Freedom from a guilty conscience. Freedom from fear. Freedom from death. All in Jesus Christ. Now, the Ten Commandments are God's will for us in our lives. They guide us in our relationships. And what you'll notice is that the Ten Commandments are split up between what we call two tables, Table 1 and Table 2, and we'll talk about this more later on. The first table of the law, that's what we call the first three commandments. So oftentimes, by the way, if you ever see a, a painting or a picture or some stitch work of the uh, two tablets of stone representing what Moses walked down the mountain with when he came down with the Ten Commandments, sometimes you'll notice on one tablet are Roman numerals 1, 2, and 3, and on the second tablet are Roman numerals 4 through 10. There is your... What do you call it? Memory aid. There is your memory aid for remembering the first and second tables of the law. The first table of the law, commandments 1 through 3, speak of your relationship with God. And the second table of the law, commandments 4 through 10, they guide your relationship with other people, with your neighbor. So if we're going to get into talking about our relationship with God and how they're guided by the Ten Commandments, then we need to know what is our relationship with God. How would you answer that if I asked you, dear listener, what is your relationship with God? There's probably a lot of ways you could answer that question, right? 
you could maybe tell me that your relationship with God is on again, off again, hot and cold. Maybe you used to have a relationship with God and you don't consider that you do anymore. Maybe you're mad at him. But when I'm talking about our relationship with God, I'm not talking about how you feel about God or what you think the relationship is. I'm actually looking for the truth. We want to dig deeper. And as with anything, when we're looking for the truth, we go back to the source of the truth, the very word of God itself. So what does God say our relationship with him looks like? Well, in order to be able to answer that question, you got to go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning, and not the beginning of your life, no, the beginning of time, the beginning of everything, all the way back to the Garden of Eden to see what happened there. As we talked about in previous episodes, God created Adam and Eve in perfection. Their will, what they wanted, always perfectly aligning with God's will, what God wanted, until that day they disobeyed. They rebelled. They chose instead slavery rather than freedom. And when they ate that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, sin entered the world, and death through sin which, by the way, is a reminder to us that death is not a physical problem, it's a spiritual problem, which means you don't need to buy all the uh, face creams and pills and lotions that tell you that they will solve the problem of aging and death. They will not. There is no medical, scientific answer to sin. Sin's not a physical problem. It's a spiritual one which means there's only a spiritual solution to sin. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they sinned, they brought into the world hereditary disease, the hereditary disease of sin. When they gave birth, when they had their babies, their babies were not born in God's image anymore. It says they were born in Adam's image. Seth was born in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. Something happened to that image. John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, is Spirit. So your parents cannot give spiritual birth to you. You are born from your parents physically alive and spiritually dead. So how do you get spiritual life? How do you get spiritual birth? John 3, 6, that's got to come from God. God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does that work. A couple more passages. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, thank you, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. If you are alive, if you are listening to this, you are sinful. You got it from your parents? It's hereditary? In fact, King David in Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful from birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We'll talk about that passage more later on because it's the passage we point to that says that uh, life 
begins at conception. But before you even had a brain to think a bad thought, before your hands were even able to commit a sin, what does King David say is true about him and me and you? I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, because we are born with that inherited sin, that original sin. Sinful from the time of our conception. And what are the results of those sins? Well, the Bible doesn't leave us hanging there either. Ephesians 2, you were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what is our relationship with God from the word go? We are dead. And because of that, we are by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. And why is that? Well, Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. If you have a mind that is set on the flesh, what are we saying? Flesh is the Bible's word oftentimes for that old sinful nature in you, that naughty part of you that loves to sin. Flesh is that part of you that just thinks about fun and comfort all the time. And so if that still describes your mindset about life, the mind that is set on the flesh, how can I be most comfortable? How can I have the most fun? How can I get the most for me? The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. Against God. Enemies of God. And why? Because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, because it's only thinking about this life, and God's law points to beyond this life. Now, where does all that wickedness come from? Where does the sin in your life come from? The, the desire and the allure to sin, the drive to sin, the drive to indulge. Matthew fifteen nineteen out of the heart. So you can't say every time the devil made me do it. You can't say about all of your sin that somebody else made you do it, that it was your parents or your siblings or your spouse. No, you need to take ownership of it. Matthew 15, out of the heart, your heart, my heart, come. What? Good, happy rainbows and sunshine? No. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, being angry, we're going to study that one. Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Those come out of us. Sometimes unprompted, our thoughts wander to places they should not, and we are held accountable for that. And so what about those thoughts? Why are they so dangerous? They're not hurting anybody, right? No one can see my thoughts, so why does it matter, right? Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have separated you and God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin and a sinful attitude and sinful desires 
The reason they are never victimless is because at the very least, we will always be the victim of our own sins. Sometimes other people are the victim of other people's sins and our sins. But what do they do? Why are they so harmful? Because our sins separate us from God. There is no connection between us and God because of those sins. And it's all the more tragic because those sins started even before you had a brain to think a sinful thought or hands to commit a sinful action. So how is that fair? That is the dreaded nature of sin. That is the tragedy of what Adam and Eve did. That is the tragedy of our inherited original sin. That's how steeped in it we are. We're steeped in it. Before the word go. Back to the catechism here, page 41. Because this guilt comes from our forefather Adam and so thoroughly corrupts our nature, we often refer to our natural sinful condition as our old Adam, our sinful nature, inherited sin, or original sin. All words for the same thing. Sinful nature, old Adam, inherited sin, original sin. And what does that old nature do, that old Adam? This sinful nature puts us under God's judgment, makes us enemies of God, and leads us to sins of thought, word, and deed, which separate us from our holy God. Yikes. Yikes. But now that we're beginning to see the truth, let's not stop here. Let's dive in. Let's go all the way. You might say, well, Pastor Wells, sure, that's true of you. Maybe your sinful nature does that. And you might be able to point to ten other people and say, well, for sure, that guy, yes. The guy sitting in jail. The guy that you just don't really like, and it kind of comforts you to think, oh, yeah, he's a bad dude. But how do you know that this description applies to you? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, you might step back and say, well, Pastor Wells, that fine, but why is it fair that what Adam and Eve did in the garden thousands of years ago, I should have to suffer for that today? And I'd say, good question. Let me ask you this. Ignore Adam and Eve for a second. Every day you have a 100 opportunities to not sin. How do you do? I doubt you'd tell me you win every time, huh? I don't think you win every struggle. I bet sometimes you even want to sin and are, are and are allured by it, huh? Is that not true? I think it is. In fact, John, 1 John 1, 8, if you say you have no sin, you are deceiving yourself. And the truth is not in us. We want the truth to be in us. That's the whole point of this podcast, too, by the way. We are truth-seeking through the Word of God. But if you say you have no sin... 
It says in the Bible that you are deceiving yourself. You're not tricking anybody else because we can see your sin and you can see my sin, right? That's just kind of the nature of human observation. I can see what's ugly about you better than I can see what's ugly about me. So you might say you have no sin. Okay, go ahead and ask four other people. Am I perfect? I bet they say no. So if you have no if you say you have no sin you are deceiving yourself not us and certainly not God. We're going to get into the uh, discussing God's attributes coming up later in later podcasts. And one of his attributes is omniscience. He knows everything. You can't deceive him. So if you really think you have no sin, nothing that needs forgiveness, then you are only succeeding in deceiving yourself. So how do you come to the realization of your sin? Well, go back and listen to our last podcast, and you will remember or learn that you come to a realization of your sin through the law. The law is curb and mirror. I should say the law is mirror. Shows you your sin, S-O-S, show us our sin so that you can see it and you will learn about your evil thoughts and deeds. Now, the Catechism brings up an interesting observation here. It says, some people try to avoid medical tests because they fear the results, but medical tests can uncover diseases that without treatment could kill us. That's one of the functions that the law is fulfilling here. Yeah, you might be afraid of what the law says, the same as you might be afraid of what a cancer screening will reveal. But does the cancer screening give you the cancer? No, it reveals it. So does God's law give you the sin? No, it reveals it. And why should that be a blessing? Why should you go have a cancer screening done? Because if you find the cancer, then you can deal with it. And it's the same of God's law. Why should you indulge in God's law, get into God's law, love God's law. Because when it reveals your sin, then you can deal with it. And that is why the law is such a blessing. One of the reasons why the law is such a blessing. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is angry and will punish you. Oh wait, no, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. What does it say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So God's law reveals to us that we are lost because of our sins. God's law shows us that we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior, somebody who will save us. And so the ground has been tilled. The soil of your heart has been prepared to hear now the good news. The gospel. Gospel, by the way, means good news. We need somebody to save us. 
And that somebody cannot be in the same spiritual condition that we are, right? That wouldn't make sense. One drowning man can't save another drowning man. The blind can't lead the blind. We need somebody who is not in the same condition as we are, and yet who knows and understands what condition we are in so he can come and help us. Listen to Hebrews. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We'll talk about the great high priest stuff later on. We don't need to dive into all that right now. It is sufficient for you to know that Jesus is that great high priest, as Hebrews said. He is the one who is not in the same spiritual condition that we are. And you would say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought you said that sin is hereditary, that it was passed down from your parents. And I would say, yes, well done. There's only one way you can get around that. One of your parents must be not human. Hello, Christmas. Hello, virgin birth. Jesus' father was God. He did not have a physical human father. So was Jesus plagued by original hereditary guilt, hereditary original sin? No, he was not. He was born of the Virgin Mary. It is most pivotal to understand and believe in that beautiful doctrine, the virgin birth. Because if we let that one go, then we just have not a Savior, we just have another cool guy, cool dude in Jesus. That's not what we need. I don't need a buddy. I need a Savior. And that's what I have in Jesus, and you do too. Hebrews 7.26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now listen to these adjectives. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So Jesus alone keeps God's law at every point where we have failed. He did not. And why was that important? Why was it important that he would keep the law? When the time, when the fullness of time had come, I'm reading Galatians 4, 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he is born under law. He's answerable to the law. And why? To receive, uh, to redeem those under the law. So he is born under the law, but he keeps the law to redeem those who are under the law, you and me, so that we might receive what? Punishment? No. Rejection? No. We might receive the adoption as sons, real sons of God. That's what Jesus did. And how did he do it? Second Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, didn't know any sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
beautiful. Do you see what the law has done? It has forced us, pressed us, blessedly to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, you you noticed a couple of uh, words in there that I use, big churchy words. Uh, This is why I love the catechism. It reminds us to slow down and define our words. Uh, Page 42, one, one of the words I used was redeem. What does it mean to redeem? It means to pay a ransom. It's to pay it's to pay the price required to set somebody free. It's the ransom. So if you are taken hostage and you want to be set free and there is a price, your parents, if they love you enough, and I hope they do. I'm sure they do, huh? Or whoever it is would pay the price to set you free. The other word, vicarious. That means uh, in the place of someone else. It's a substitution. So when we talk about the vicarious sacrifice of God, of Jesus, we're saying that he died in the place of someone else who should have died, vicarious, in taking the place of someone else. And finally, atonement. And in that word, atonement, you can see three words, at, or two words, at one, because meant isn't the word. But at one, those are two words, at one. So that's what atonement means. It puts you at one. It puts you at peace with God by removing the guilt of your sin. And that only happens through Jesus Christ. So we can say that we have a vicarious atonement. We have an at-one-ment with God that happened vicariously through somebody else, not by us. Jesus is that vicarious atonement. He is the in-your-place-at-one-ment guy. So, if Jesus has done that, what's the result? What's the result of Jesus' death for us on the cross in our place? What's the result of Jesus dying for our sins? Because finally, that's what the vicarious atonement was. All sin must be punished. And all sin was punished in Jesus Christ. He took your death. He took your spot. He took your place. That's what the cross was about. So what's the result of that then? Romans 5.17 If because of one man's, man's trespass, death reigned through one man, and which one man are we talking about? We're talking about Adam, who sinned, And sin entered the world, and by that one trespass, you remember what trespassing means. If you're a hunter, especially up here in Wisconsin, lots of hunters, you know what trespassing means, right? Don't go beyond that, well, in this case, property line. Don't go beyond that line. So if because of one man's trespass, one man went through that beyond the line where he wasn't supposed to go, death reigned through that one man, okay? Now, who is greater, Adam or Jesus? Clearly Jesus, right? He was the Son of God. So, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we have the old Adam, the first Adam, which was Adam in the garden, and then we have Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam. He's the great undo button. Okay? What's the result of his death? Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption. Again, the purchase price to set us free. 
That is in Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were a goner. And you were by nature children of wrath at at enemies with God. Like the rest of mankind. We read that verse before, but here's the second part of it now. But God being rich in mercy. Oh, that beautiful word, mercy. God's undeserved love for you. God's love that he gave to you even when you were not lovable. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when... You, we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What a beautiful passage. You get to heaven because of what Jesus did for you. Don't ever forget that. First John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. So you are forgiven in Jesus. And now what's the difference? What difference does that make in your life? Listen to two more passages here. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're a new guy. There's a fresh start. There's a new beginning for you in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and made uh, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the ability to pass on that message. The good news that Jesus has forgiven your sins and made you a new person. Ephesians 4, put off your old self. Stop being the old you. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The old you wants the bad stuff, and you've experienced this in your life. So how much longer do you want to follow the old self? When you know that the old you, the old self, wants to lead you back to the booze, lead you back to the weed, lead you back to the things that numb your mind and hurt your body, convincing you it's fun, how much longer do you want to follow that guy who is corrupted through deceitful desires, wanting the wrong things? Ephesians, Paul says, put off that guy. Put off your old self. And now be renewed. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. Take off the old, put on the new. And what's the new one like? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. My friend, repent of your sin. My friend, go to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and a new life. You don't have to live like that anymore. Christ can forgive you and make you a whole new person. Do not go back again to slavery. Once we were controlled by the old Adam, and we were dead in sin and enemies of God, but now you've come to faith, and a new person came to life in you, in each of us. And with that new attitude towards sin and righteousness, we flee from sin and we flee to righteousness in forgiveness in Christ. We, we talk about that as being the new person, the new you, the new self, the spiritual person, your spiritual being. 
No, you will not now nail every challenge in life. You will not now have conquered every sin, but you now know what to do with your sin. Take it to Jesus Christ and have it forgiven. So, you've got an old part of you and a new part of you. You've got the old Adam and the new man. So what's that like now? Welcome to the war, brother. Welcome to the war, sister. Because now there's a battle that rages, and it rages in each and every one of us because we are two people. In, in Latin, they would have the, they had the saying, simul justus et peccator. At the same time, saint and sinner. So that is who we are now. We have both the old Adam and the new self in us. And Galatians 5 tells us what that struggle is. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Oh, man. (laughs) The tug of war. Oh, the tug of war. You've seen it pictured in the in other places as a as a as a demon on one shoulder and an angel on the other. Two dogs fighting in us. Listen to Paul. Paul says, "Here's how screwed up we are." I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul says. And if Paul says that by the way, oh man, I can I can add 10 times that. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. You ever been there? I want to do the right thing, but I didn't do it. Gah! I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's the old you. That's not the real you. That's the old you. So Paul says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. We are screwed up, huh? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, in my inside, I love God's law, but on my outside I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And it's not written in the catechism. I wish they would have put it the next verse. Oh, what a wretched man I am. That's the solution. <laughs> That's what Paul says. He just kind of throws up his hands. Oh, I'm a wretched man. Who will save me from this body of death, he says. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. That's what he saves me from. He saves me from myself. So how does that new self that is in you, which is warring against that old self, which is still in you, how does the new self respond to the gift of forgiveness and eternal life? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The new you is willing to make sacrifices. And not with the downcast face of my 10-year-old who just sometimes feels so put upon when told to clean his room. 
though he'll go and clean his room, he'll do it with a pout on his face the whole time. Oh, No, we're not like that. We're happy to make sacrifices. Because we know what sacrifices God made for us. 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us. And here's why, because we've concluded this, one has died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live, you and me, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Don't you find that the most difficult battles in life are not the battles you fight with other people, but it's the battles you fight within yourself? And don't you ever just feel like you're sick and tired of going to war with yourself? And so sometimes you're convinced it's somebody else. I shouldn't have to battle myself this time. This time I can put it on somebody else. Sorry, friend. That is not true. Because if you go down that road, now you are being controlled by anger or rage or bitterness. That is not what Paul wrote here. The love of Christ controls us. And that love of Christ leads me to want to sacrifice for others and then drives me to my knees for the strength I need, the forgiveness I need. So yes, some people think that the commandments are rules that take all the fun out of life. I will tell you that if you indulge in sin, you will not have a fun life. (laughs) But if you indulge in the Ten Commandments, you will have a most blessed life. You will have peace in your conscience. You will have peace in some of your relationships. Along with other blessings, Psalm 19 tells you what some of those other blessings are. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Would you like your soul revived? I would. Go to the law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making the wise, making wise the simple. Would you like to be wiser? <laughs> in how you conduct yourself and how you live, go to the law. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. Does your heart sing day by day? Would you like to have a rejoicing heart and not a burdened heart? Find it in the law of God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Finally, why is God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, a blessing for when we want to say thank you? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. That's an introduction. Well, let's say that's an extended introduction to the Ten Commandments. We are now ready with a firm understanding of the role of God's law, with a firm understanding of our relationship with God as it is by nature. We are ready to indulge blessedly in the Ten Commandments. And you will see a pattern emerge that will curb your old sinful nature and make that new man in you rejoice 
And in all of it, we will see our Savior Jesus, our vicarious atonement, our rescuer, our redeemer, the source of our faith and the confidence of our lives. Thank you, friends. Do not forget to join me again soon for the next podcast. Again, reach out to me, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Podcast, twicethelutheran.org. Until next time, my friends.